I used to like snow. <laughs> I used to like it. When I was a kid, this would have been the best winter ever, wouldn't it? Oh, it was just amazing. I mean, even when it was up into my teens, my early 20s, my 30s, one of my favorite events of the year was this snow football game that we had. My buddies and I, for 30 consecutive years, we would jump the fence at Todd Field and Hastings, and we'd just have this big old battle down there once a year. And we averaged about one injury per year, one significant injury per year. Um, the year I broke this finger right here, I was able to just tape it up, you know, and keep going. But the year that I bruised my ribs, or more accurately, when Tiber and Oberg bruised my ribs, um, I couldn't do anything. If you've ever had a broken rib or a bruised rib, man, I, I, it hurt to sit up. It hurt to roll over. I mean, it hurt to breathe. It was tough. When something is wrong with your body's core, it affects everything, doesn't it? You can have a broken finger, that type of thing, it hurts. But when it's, something's wrong with your core, it affects everything. And the same is true with the church. The Bible compares the church to a body. And when something's not right with the church's core, it affects everything. The Bible also compares the church to a building. And when something's not right with your building's core, it affects everything. I heard some bumps and cracks in the night that got me up out of bed because I'm like, man, what is going on with our roof? It had me, had me affected. If there's chipped paint, that's not a big deal. If it feels like your roof is about to cave in on you, that's a, that's a big deal. Well, when I was a junior in college, I got to live in an off-campus house with a bunch of guys. And the interior looked an awful lot like a house. It was a college house. Some of you have been in Hotel Bowler before. I mean, it, the, the, the uh, furniture was old, the carpet was old, the paint was old, the outdated kitchen, all those things. But it had an indoor pool, an indoor hot tub, which was just a blast. Well, my senior year, I developed exercise-induced asthma. And I'd never had that before. And it just seemed so mysterious until about five years later, when the symptoms were all gone, I started to connect the dots. And the dots really connected when another family bought that house that I used to live in. They bought the house, they redid the kitchen, they redid the lighting, they painted every wall, they put in new carpet. And they all started having health problems the longer they lived there. They brought in an inspector. The inspector found out there was mold from that, all that humidity. They had to tear everything out, tear off all the walls, all the carpeting, all the new cabinets, everything they had put in. They had to tear it all out, go all the way down to the core and start over. If there's something wrong with your core, it affects everything, everything. Well, for the last five weeks, we've been looking at some core practices of God's church Four weeks ago, we looked at the core practices of corporate confession and forgiveness. Three weeks ago, we discussed the importance of liturgy and creeds. And wasn't that beautiful, that kid reading the creeds? It's so beautiful. Three weeks ago, I've talked about that. Uh, two weeks ago, we discussed the importance of praying together for God's vision, rather being, than just being market-driven or those types of things. And then last week, we talked about the importance of praying together for healing and hope which sometimes results in healing that we didn't know we needed. Well, in this final week of this series, we're going to explore the core practice of fasting, of fasting. Moses fasted, Esther fasted, David fasted, Anna fasted. 
And they experience the kinds of things that most of us long to see more of. Imagine, imagine if we could connect with God the way they did. Imagine if we could hear from God with the clarity that Moses heard from God with. Imagine if we could be delivered from evil the way that Esther was. Imagine if we could come a, become a person after God's own heart, like David. Or if we could see the things that almost everybody else missed, like Anna. What could happen if we fasted together? Well, Jesus fasted. I mean, let's take a look at one of the things he said about it. If you have your Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we're going to look at verses 16 through 17 here. Actually, we'll look, yeah, 16 and 17. If you don't have a Bible, I want to let you know we'll, we have a stack of them. We keep them there at the, the back uh, table on your way out. Please grab one as a gift to you. All right, here we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 7. Let's start with just verse 16. Jesus said, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. All right, let's talk about this a little bit. And I want to start with that phrase, when you fast. That has haunted me. Does it haunt anybody else that when you fast? It appears as Jesus is saying, not if you fast, but what? When you fast. That's what Jesus seems to be applying, that fasting for his disciples is not an if, it's a when. And he says, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. The Greek word translated here as hypocrites, it draws from the world of theater. It draws from the world of theater. Greek theater would often involve actors who would play multiple parts, and sometimes they would wear different masks. Fasting should be true to who you are. It should be true to who you are. And it should be something that we're not doing for applause. Jesus goes on to say this, uh, verses 17 through 18. He says, uh, but when you fast, there is that when again, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here's one of the things that Jesus said about fasting. Now, I've, over the years, I've heard a lot of people talk about their personal experiences with fasting, but I've never really did a focused study on it. I've never really just gone into the scriptures and tried to look up everything the Bible says about fasting and see what the Bible itself says. With the time we've got this morning, I want to look at how the scriptures answer three questions. What is fasting? Number two, why should we fast? And number three, how often should we fast together? All right, so number one, what is fasting? From a biblical perspective, I mean, if you Google fasting, you come up with 80 million, 80 million links. And people in those 80 million links are offering their thoughts on fasting. When I did a keyword search in the Bible, I was actually surprised to see how few references there are to fasting. I thought I remember there being more about fasting than there actually is. About half of those, if you're you know, doing the English word fast, about half of those references or more actually are about holding fast. They're not about fasting, they're about holding fast. Here's an example of that, 2 Kings 18.6. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments the Lord commanded Moses. There's certainly a connection between fasting and holding fast. But what I wanted to get to is like, what is it? What is fasting from a biblical perspective? And I found at least three things, at least three things that are components of a biblical fast. And there's a place to write these down in your notes. When we fast, we deliberately abstain from food 
for a purpose. Those are three operative words that I, that I seem to pick up on. Let's break it down. Let's start with the word food. Fasting in the Bible involves abstaining from food. Now, there were some fasts that were food and. No food and no drink. Or no food and no personal grooming. Jesus is talking about that. When you're fast, don't you know, let everyone know about your outward appearances. Some fasts also involve putting ashes on yourself or wearing what's called sackcloth. Sackcloth is this, it's a coarse fabric made out of camel hair or goat hair that people would wear when they were mourning. Some fasts last a day, some overnight, some three days, some seven days. There were some that were 40 days. But at the core of all those biblical fasts was an abstaining from food. And the abstinence from food was deliberate. It was a choice. That's one of the things that made it a fast. Hunger doesn't always lead to holiness. In fact, God instructs us to help those who are hungry. Isaiah 58, 6 through 7 says this, Is not the fast that I chose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? If we're neglecting the needs of the poor and the oppressed, then fasting is in vain. Then fasting is in vain. Which brings us to that word purpose. One of the things that really became clear as I looked at the examples of fasting that you find in the Bible, fasting appears to be focused. Fasting, at least in the scripture, it appears to be focused. There are some general things that fasting does. If you fast, there are some just general things that will happen. Um, one of the things is it helps you better identify with those who are hungry as you're feeling those hunger pains. It helps us to realize how blessed we are to be able to have food. It reminds us of our dependency and our frailness. And at least in my little one-week study here, it appears as though each fast had a purpose behind it when people would fast. Which then brings us to the second question. Why would we fast? Why would we fast? There's a place to write this down. Fasting is a means dot, dot, dot. At least as best I can discern it, fasting seems to be a means, not an end in and of itself. It's a means to something else. It appears as though we don't get participation medals just for abstaining from food. I did it. I fasted. And <laughs> your point of the fast was what? Here's an example of that from the Old Testament, Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your what? Your hearts, not your garments. This isn't about a show. This isn't about letting the world know that you're fasting. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. So there's an Old Testament example. Let's look at an example from the New Testament. Jesus told this story, Luke chapter 18. Let's take a look at this one if you have your Bibles. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Here's a story that Jesus told. He tells a story of a Pharisee who were considered the commandment keepers and a tax collector who was considered completely corrupt. All right, so here we go. Uh, let's start with verses 9 through 12. And Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Another was a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or this guy. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, he says. For I... 
fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Over the years, as I was doing my homework here, it seems that some Jews adopted the practice of fasting every Monday and every Thursday. That's the twice a week thing here. Does anyone know where you find that commandment in the Bible, to fast on Mondays and Thursdays? (laughs) It's not there. Or even just to fast two days a week. It's not there. Picking up with verses 13 and 14. But, there he is, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went down to the house, his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is another thing that Jesus taught. On fasting. As he so often does, Jesus flips the script. As the Pharisees reminding God of all the great things on his righteousness resume, the tax collector is aware I am completely dependent on God and his mercy. Fasting, at least as I can discern it here, doesn't, in, doesn't appear to have intrinsic value. In the Bible, fasting appears to be a means to another end. Let me give you four examples that I came across. Four examples. And these are more categories. There seem to be several examples for these. Fasting is a mean to express lament. Lament. People have been rediscovering that word lament over the last decade or so. To lament is to grieve deeply. To grieve deeply. And fasting is one way to grieve deeply with your whole self. To literally feel it in your body. Here's an example from 2 Samuel 1, 11 through 12. Then David took hold of his clothes, he tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Fasting can be that. It can also be a means to acknowledge brokenness. That's what we saw with this tax collector, this brokenness that Jesus affirmed. In the Bible, you see words like humility, repentance associated with fasting a lot. Fasting is a mean by which a person can express their sincere sorrow for doing something they now regret. And what I love about fasting, is more, it, it, it's more than just saying you're sorry. It's pressing in. I don't want this to be flippant. If it's real, if I'm really feeling grief over this, let me press into this. Let me see the way God sees and explore, is there anything, God, you would have me to do to make things right? If I've been walking the wrong way, is there something you'd have me to do to make things right? Here's an example of that, 1 Kings chapter 22. When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days. All right, so fasting can do those things. Fasting can also do this. It can be a means to seek guidance. And as I think about the people I know who fast, this is the number one. When they're fasting, it's almost always because I'm looking for guidance. God, speak to me. Speak to me. When there's a really big decision ahead, a lot of times people will fast. And there's precedence for that in the book of Acts, Acts 13.3. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands 
on these people that were appointed as missionaries, and they sent them off. All right, let's look at one more category. Fasting can also be a means to petition for intervention. In other words, to ask for help, for God's help, for God to intervene. If seeking guidance is the number one reason I see people fasting today, this is number two. And there's a biblical precedent for this. When evil is at your doorstep, a lot of people, they turn to prayer and fasting. Here's the classic example of that from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 16. Go, she says, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not drink or eat for three days, night or day. And my young women and I, we will also fast as you do. Then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. All right. Well, we've touched on the first two questions here. What is fasting? Fasting, at least as best I can discern it, involves deliberately abstaining from food for a purpose. Why should we fast? We've looked at four examples that the Bible gives to express lament, to acknowledge our brokenness, to seek guidance, and to ask God for help. All right, what about that third question? How often? How often should we fast together? Jesus did say, when you fast. But he said a lot more about how not to fast than he actually said about fasting. If you look up, do a word search on this, we word search on Jesus and fast. There's not much there. You have the 40-day fast that he did. You have these two teachings that, that I gave you that are more about what not to do. And then you even have this, this interesting, this shows up in Matthew and Mark and Luke, all of them include an incidence where people say, Jesus, John's disciples fasted. Why don't yours? People seem to pick up on this. Why weren't his disciples fasting? And Jesus' response included the when word again. Interestingly enough, Jesus responded by saying, wedding guests don't fast when the bridegroom is with them. But when he's taken away, they'll fast. I believe you can make an easy and strong case from the scriptures for regular rhythms when it comes to prayer. Regular rhythms when it comes to scripture reading. Regular rhythms for gathering and worship and confession and communion. With my little one week of study here, so remember that's all that you've got here. For what it's worth, it appears that fasting is something you do when there's deep lament. When you realize you've really blown it. When you need guidance. When you realize you really need help. In fact, the only place I could find a calendar-driven fast, the only one in the entire Bible that I could find, is right here. There's a place to write this down. The Old Testament calls for an annual fast on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement. If you're not familiar with the word atonement, it is a central, central theme in the Bible. It's one way of remembering it as at-one-ment. There is a relationship that was broken and now it's being reconciled. It's being brought together. Something that was broken is being made right. Atonement is at the core of Scripture. The book of Leviticus really makes this clear. Um, Leviticus contains some of the offerings and sacrifices that were made to atone for the sins of the people. And there were a lot of them. Have you ever read Leviticus? There were a lot of them. Maybe your study Bibles do something like, like my go-to study Bible has these tables where they're trying to chart out all of these 
categories of offerings and sacrifices. There's these tables and charts that have got five different types of offerings, four different types of sacrifices, including which animals are to be used, how the blood was to be applied, who the portions were apportioned to. And even after 15 chapters of rites and rituals, even if they were doing all those things, atonement wasn't complete. So they had this day of atonement to erase all the red in the ledger that was still there. This day of atonement. And in your um, notes, I typed out this, this little, this is an extremely abbreviated uh, snapshot of what happened on that day of atonement. On that day of atonement, vicarious blood sacrifices were offered for the sins of the people. These sacrifices were mediated by a high priest. The high priest then would enter the Holy of Holies after making atonement for his sins. And then after additional sacrifices, shalom, peace, was temporarily restored. But then what would happen? I'll start over again. Sacrifices. All right, I had two big aha moments this week. The first was a sense of peace that I've never had before in all my life when it came to fasting. Like I said earlier, that word when haunted me. And I've never been able to kind of figure out like, when, how often should I be fasting? Jesus implies your disciples should be fasting. What does that mean? Once a week, once a month, it appears to me at least from this little tiny study that I've had, that fasting isn't prescribed as something you do once a week or once a month. It's not prescribed that way. I have a growing sense of peace that it's a focused discipline that your win is connected to when you're mourning, when you're expressing and feeling that brokenness, when you're seeking guidance or when you're asking for help. That was my first aha moment when it comes to fasting. Here's my second. This one, I, everyone that pretty much came in the office this week, I'm like, you got to hear this. And they already probably all knew it anyway, but I'm like, oh, light bulbs are going off in my head. All right, when you go back at the list of these things that happened on the Day of Atonement, Look at what was fulfilled in Jesus during the season that we're commemorating up ahead. Are you kidding me? Take a look at this list. And this is just from Hebrews, Hebrews' take on all this. Christ himself was a holy, innocent, and unstained sacrifice. Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest. Christ has entered not into holy places that were made with human hands, which are just copies of the true things, but into heaven itself by means of his own blood. And this sacrifice was once for what? And who? Oh, once for all. And there's even more parallels between these two. On the Day of Atonement, a sacrifice was offered outside the camp. Jesus crucified outside the city gates. And there's this cryptic message. I didn't know, a lot of scholars didn't know what to do with this. On the day of atonement, there's a scapegoat and the scapegoat is banished as a sign of sin's eradication from the people. And there's this cryptic reference that many scholars believe refers to a demonic presence out in the wilderness. Well, we heard that apostles creed today and he descended into hell. I wonder if there's any parallels with all of that. It'd be interesting to explore that sometime. Well, the early Christians, they knew about this day of atonement. 
In fact, in Acts chapter 27, verse 9, they just refer to it as the fast. The fast. They call it the Day of Atonement. So they knew about this Day of Atonement. And when you consider what was prescribed on the Day of Atonement and what Jesus accomplished on the cross, it is no wonder that early Christians said, this is that. What we were seeing then was a shadow of what was fulfilled in Christ. So here's my second aha moment. Lent. Lent. Lent is a season worth commemorating. Lent is a season we commemorate those things that happened on the Day of Atonement. Lent is a season of prayer, fasting, self-examination. It sure sounds an awful lot like what was prescribed on the Day of Atonement. I want to encourage you to write this one more thing in your notes, and then I want to extend an invitation to you. Here's what I encourage you to write down. Lent is the perfect season to fast together. If there's any calendar-driven season to fast together, what a great season to do that. So here's our invitation. We want to encourage you, invite you, to consider fasting with us this season. So here's the fast. We're going to call for a specific one, too. Beginning on Wednesday with Ash Wednesday, continuing through Easter, we're going to press into passages from 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We live in a broken world. You may have noticed that. We live in a broken world. And we're going to look at what God would have us to do when it comes to being agents of reconciliation in it, in our small corner. So that's going to be the focus of our fast, reconciliation. And think, what might God do if we all humbled ourselves over this season and we did a lot of reflection and examination and we started with, God, how have I contributed to brokenness in this world? How am I contributing to, to putting divisions out there? How am I contributing to discourse that is not helpful? How am I contributing in ways that are, that are pushing people apart rather than bringing them together? What might God do in our own lives if we reflected on that deeply? And what if we started praying, God, go ahead of me. Go ahead of me. And I'm going to intercede on behalf of conversations that you might invite me to have when this is over. Go ahead of me. Prepare that. So when I talk to the person that I'm estranged with, when I, when I try my best, as much as it depends on me, to try to reconcile, God, go before me in those moments. What might God do if we invited him to help us become bridge builders in a world where people are becoming more and more polarized? What might God do if we prayed and we fasted and we pressed in? So we printed on the back of your notes some information about the upcoming series. We also put some specific things about this fast that we're going to encourage you to consider. In fact, one of them would be this. Um, I, I hadn't heard about this practice. Some people talking about having a fast, especially like on Ash Wednesday or Good Friday, where the first time food touches your mouth, it's communion. That might be interesting. Consider that for our Ash Wednesday service, a fasting that day. That could be a powerful moment. Powerful moment. Well, speaking of communion, that is one of our rhythms. That's something we do regularly here as a church. At least once a month, we try to come together around what we call the sacrament of Holy Communion. When we engage with this sacrament, we commemorate this event. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way also after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We don't ever, ever want this to be an empty ritual. The Bible warns us against that. So we encourage sincere reflection here as we meet with Christ. And this is interesting. Um, we're, we're going to be, as a church, we've always done, when, when parents ask us, hey, I have a child and I'd like to consider having them engage in communion with me. You know, can, and all in the past, we've always had that just individual, and we'll still do that. If you'd like us to sit down with your family, talk to your kids and your, about communion, we'd be happy to do that. And we're also going to start a first communion. We're going to be, we're gonna be um, integrating that into our preteen, our preteen program. So actually in a few weeks, we're going to be having some, potentially some, some students up here having their first communion that we're going to gather all around together and celebrate that. Well, as we were preparing for this, uh, Dan... Our, our youth pastor came into the office and he was all excited because he was reading through the covenant book of worship and some of the things that the covenant said about first communion. And one of the things they, they talk about with communion is they talk about this, what's called the sacramental nature of it, that God is at work in that moment. And they use the imagery of a hug. Think about this. Is a hug symbolic or is it something more? Is there something in that action that's actually happening, especially if there's reconciliation? There's something that can happen here today when we participate in communion. It's not just a symbolic ritual or rite. This is something we can encounter God here in our midst as we're engaging in this ritual. 